0: Welcome to PeelPod's Just Environmental Law, debating environmental law and
1: justice for everyone. Brought to you by Public Interest Environmental Law, UK. Hello everyone, welcome back to PeelPod, where we talk about environmental law, brought to you by Peel UK. I am your host, Ijin, and today we have a special guest with us, Dr Elisa Calieri. Uh, Dr. Elisa Cagliari is a research scholar at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, IIASA in Vienna, an Associate Senior Research Fellow at the Department of Political Science at University College London, UCL. Her research focuses on the politics and governance of climate change, loss and damage at different scales, from climate change negotiations to national policymaking processes. She is also interested in studying how planned relocation can be employed as an anticipatory and strategic form of climate change adaptation in Europe. She is currently a member of the Italian Delegation at the UNFCCC, providing technical support on loss and damage to the Italian Ministry of the Environment and Energy Security. Welcome to the podcast, Elisa. How are you doing today? Hello, Ijen, I'm fine. Yeah. Uh, what about you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good too. Are you getting ready for the Christmas break?
0: Yes, yes. I'm still yeah. at the office, but
1: yeah, <laughs> looking forward. Looking forward to it. Looking forward yeah. to it. Thank you again <laughs> for
0: the invitation. I'm really excited. No
1: problem about being
0: part of this podcast.
1: No, thank you for joining us today, really. Um today on this episode, we are going to talk about loss and damage. Because first of all, Um, We've heard a lot about loss and damage, especially the past few weeks after, during and after COP27, but I feel like it's become a buzzword. People hear about it, you see it on news articles, you see it on social media, but a lot of people don't seem to understand what actually is loss and damage. So can you tell us what loss and damage exactly is?
0: Well, I will try. It's not easy to define loss and damage, first of all, because you may know that there is no official definition of what loss and damage is uh, within climate negotiations. So parties agreed to disagree on the conceptual boundaries of loss and damage. There's a common understanding, I would say, so typically, uh, loss and damage is understood as those negative impacts from climate change, which materialize in particularly vulnerable developing countries, uh, which are driven by both extreme events like cyclones, for example, or um, heavy precipitation, but also from the so-called slow onset events like sea level rise or uh, desertification. and. And there's also um, a distinction which is usually made between the type of loss and damage which can materialize. And in negotiations, Uh, You will hear people talking about economic losses to refer, for example, to adverse impacts on productive sectors like agriculture or tourism or damages to infrastructure, for example. But you you will also hear people talking about non-economic losses. And here you have a bunch of very different impacts like um, impacts on ecosystem services uh, biodiversity loss or uh, uh, issues related to human mobility in the context of climate change like displacement or again impacts to um, um, cultural heritage so all those impacts from climate change which are very severe but it's very difficult to um, to quantify them and also to put like a um, price tag in a way to, to assess them in, in economic terms and then in in terms of responses to loss and damage within negotiations and in particularly with the adoption of the paris agreement there's like um, um, a suit of different actions that needs to be put in place in order to respond to loss and damage uh if you take article 8 of the paris agreement um you will read that uh, parties recognize the importance of averting, minimizing, and addressing loss and damage. So it means that in the first place, it's important to make sure that loss and damage, so the negative impacts from climate change still materialize, and you can do that through mitigation. Mm-hmm. But when they materialize, you need to make sure that you kind of uh, minimize them, and, and this is what you do with adaptation measures or uh, disaster risk reduction measures. But then, even if you try to mitigate as much as you can or to adapt as much as you can to climate change impacts, um, you will have like, what is called the residual impacts from climate change. And you also need to put in place some you know, measures to, to tackle those. And this is the part of addressing loss and damage. And this can be done, for example, through an insurance scheme. And within negotiation, there's a lot of discussion about you know, this type of um, activities, but also social protections, measures, or compensation, so compensatory measures. Yeah. And this is why loss and damage has been very, very contentious in yeah. climate negotiations, because you know many developing countries have tended to frame loss and damage response in terms of uh, monetary compensation for the impacts they were suffering mm-hmm. so um this is in short or maybe not that much in short uh, how you talk about loss dynamics in climate negotiations if you're interested we can also discuss how it is talked about within the scientific community
1: yeah yeah now you mentioned um mitigation and adaptation so for those mm-hmm. who are not familiar mitigation is efforts like reducing greenhouse gases And adaptation, you can say it's like adjusting to build resilience against current or future climate change impacts. Why do we need a fund for loss and damage when we already have mitigation and adaptation efforts in place? What makes it different?
0: It's important because, first of all, Mitigation uh, is key, but we can go back in time and mitigate the emissions we have already emitted. So we are experiencing today the impacts from climate change which result from historic uh, emissions. So we we cannot really act 100% on that uh, specific uh, measure. With respect to adaptation, there are limits to adaptation. It's not always possible to adapt. There are some hard limits, especially in, in natural systems. For example, what can you do when a glacier melts because of the increase of uh, temperature? You can't do anything about mm-hmm. that. You just lose the glacier or you just uh, lose your coral reef because of uh, ocean acidification. So these are very hard limits to adaptation. Yeah. And, but also, if you think about human systems, there are situations in which... Adaptation in principle could be possible, but in practice it is not because, for example, you don't have the capacity, you don't have uh, supportive institutions that, ha- that helps communities to adapt, or you- simply you don't have the money to do so. Mm-hmm. For example, if, you, um, if you're facing sea level rise, yeah. maybe, you know, in principle you could buy, you could build sea walls, you could reclaim land, you, from a technical point of view you could do stuff. Mm-hmm. But these interventions are so, so expensive that it's impossible, especially in a developing country context, to, to implement them. So in that case, adaptation cannot be enough. It's not an option. So this is why we also need to think about how we address these impacts, which we cannot you know, respond to through mitigation and adaptation. This is what those endemics is about.
1: You mentioned residual impacts that can't necessarily be mitigated or adapted to. And the loss and damage fund is to support the recovery and rebuilding of countries most vulnerable to climate-related disasters. Now, when we talk about most vulnerable countries, are we referring to developing countries? So it is targeted
0: to developing countries uh, within uh, climate change negotiations, because there is a, a recognition that Developing countries, or at least some of them, like small island states or LDCs, so least developed countries, um, are are more vulnerable to to the impacts from climate change because, well, simply they don't have the resources or they don't have enough resources or capacity uh, to to adapt. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in this respect, uh, you know, there's a recognition of the need to support uh, the most vulnerable, uh, but on the other side, I would like to stress that loss and damage is something that is happening in the so-called developed world too. For mm-hmm. example, I come from northern Italy, and in in twenty fifty, some glaciers um, in my region will disappear. So um, this is something that is also happening in the global north. But uh, within, you know, climate talks, there's a recognition of the need to support. Uh, those countries that are are not well positioned in a way to to deal with these very severe
1: impacts. I see, I see. Now, the whole reason why loss and damage is getting more buzz nowadays is because for the first time in 30 years of climate talks, there was a historic decision to establish and operationalize a loss and damage fund. In a way, this was the biggest achievement. In COP27. But why did it take us so long to get here? Well, um, when I was trying
0: in a way to define loss and damage, I I talked about the need to address loss and damage, so to tackle the residual impacts from climate change. And I mentioned that um, some developing countries, and in particular the alliance of uh, small island states, um, have tried to to frame, you know, um, this type of measures to address loss and damage in terms of compensation. And this is an idea that comes from the very uh, early days of climate negotiations when the the same convention, uh, Mm -hmm. UNFCCC, was being negotiated and drafted. And in that context, small island states asked for the creation of what they called uh, an insurance scheme, which at the end of the day was a compensatory scheme to get um, compensation again, uh, for the impacts from sea level rise that they would have suffered, um, you know, in the future, but which to be fair, they were already suffering. And and the way this scheme had to work was to be based on historical responsibility. So it would have been, you know, Focused on contributions by industrialized countries, um, and, and as you can imagine, this idea was not very appealing <laughs> to industrialized countries because it, it would have meant somehow to to open up for the possibility of really, um, how can I say, very very costly damages to be paid off somehow. So it didn't make it through uh the the final convention so there was no reference to this insurance scheme or even less to any compensatory scheme um and the the discussion on loss and damage was kind of um put aside but then it came back in negotiations with in the well in in 2010 Mm -hmm. and afterwards and since then it was a slow you know a process of trying, you know, to, to first understand what loss and damage was, how it could be tackled, and an increasing recognition that also financial resources uh, were needed to do so.
1: Okay. So that's why
0: it took a long time.
1: It took a long time, really. Um, the agreement to a loss and damage fund is important and worth celebrating. But then again, countries have yet to decide the details, i.e. how do we quantify loss and damage? What is the baseline for attributing loss and damage? Payment monitoring, evaluation. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Well, let's say, let's put it like this. What developing countries,
0: and when I say developing countries, I refer to the G77 as a whole because it was mm-hmm. a really you know, um, tight negotiation block. Yeah. Um, what they wanted from COP27 was to have like a, a political sign, So they wanted the fund and the funding arrangements because, to be fair, two things were established at uh, COP27. These Mm -hmm. new funding arrangements, Mm -hmm. which means that they can also involve, you know, announcing uh, existing uh, uh, mechanisms, initiatives, or funds within and beyond the convention. Mm -hmm. And that these new funding arrangements should also include a fund. So these were the things which were decided. And, and the objective by 77 was to have at COP27 a political decision that this would have happened. So all the technicalities of how the fund would work will be defined uh, next year, so in, during 2023, because the decision also decided to create what is called a transitional committee, Mm-hmm. Uh, which should come out with some recommendation on how the funding arrangements and the fund should work to be adopted by COP28. So uh, it, it is always important to to remember that what was decided at COP27 was more of a, of a process in a way, a short one, a very short one, because a lot of work will need to be done yeah. during 2023. But yeah, I guess that it wouldn't... Yeah, we would be, we need to be a bit more patient uh, mm-hmm. to see how the, the, the fund will be made up or running.
1: And we've seen how certain countries are reacting based on previous COPs, their attitude towards the whole climate talk. Seeing these negotiation trends in such arenas, what are the challenges to actually set up an effective fund?
0: This is a very <laughs> difficult question because um, I think that also the idea of effectiveness changes from part from parties to parties. So, what does this mean for a small island state or for African states, for the European Union or the US who are donors? So, I'm not sure I can really answer these these questions because it, it really depends on which perspective um, you're taking. Um, of course, uh, another issue is that, that maybe we can reflect on is uh, how much it will take for this fund to be up and running because setting up a new fund, even though the timeline of the activities which was specified uh, in SHARM is very tight and there are many things that will be going on next year. Uh, well, maybe uh, it's an ambitious, let's say, Uh, timeline if we think about how the green climate fund was set up well yes it was politically set up through a decision but then it took i think six or seven years for it to to be operationalized Mm. so yeah it's probably too, too early to to reflect on what this fund will be able to do, or how it will work, which countries will target, uh, who will be contributing to the fund, because all these technicalities still need to be discussed.
1: How can funds be raised and mobilized to compensate for loss and damage?
0: So, um, first of all, I wouldn't say that these funds would be used to compensate for loss and damage, Mm -hmm. or maybe... um, I mean because w- when you talk about compensation at least in climate negotiations, you always refer to a legalistic you know mm. concept that this was not the way parties wanted to frame it mm-hmm. uh, at cop, so it's not a compensatory fund yeah. it's a fund that should support uh, countries mm. um, so the fr- on the basis I guess of solidarity so the you know the conceptual framing um, is a bit different um. Usually uh, other funds under the UNFCCC work, or well, um, the contribution to this fund is provided by developed countries, the so-called Annex One countries, if we consider the old way of classifying uh, different countries within UNFCCC. What is it it could be different uh, with the and Damage Fund is that uh, the decision text open up for the opportunity for a diverse set of actors to contribute into the fund. So, for example, um, you know, uh, carbon taxes or aviation taxes or any other type of mar- market instrument and the revenues from the market, these market instruments could, you know, provide resources to the fund. And this is important because we cannot just rely on public funding um, for this kind of, you know, for for having a a well-resourced loss and Damage Fund. So it is important also to tap on other resources which are available. So this innovative financing mechanism can play and will probably play a role. Um, Again, the, the decision text opens up for the opportunity, not just for developed countries to contribute, but from other, you know, Parties, so there's an opportunity also for South-South cooperation. So, for example, if China, let's say, is willing to contribute, there's nothing stopping the country to do so. Um, so, I think, yeah, just to sum up, that you know, the, the and Demands Fund will provide an opportunity for tapping on very different type of resources, and and in a way, exploit the full ecosystems of resources which is out there and which is not, you know, restricted to what happens within the climate convention and the Paris Agreement.
1: From a European perspective, what is Europe doing in terms of loss and damage?
0: Yeah, as you mentioned in the the introduction, I'm part of the Italian delegation, which means that I'm part of the EU delegation because we we negotiate as a bloc. Mm -hmm. And... And I can, I'm proud somehow to say that the EU has been pretty active in in, in providing support for loss and damage. Uh, For example, you might have heard about many initiatives which were not strictly taking place within climate negotiations, but which are are somehow related. For example, the Global Shield Against Climate Risk, uh, which was proposed by um, um, the G7 together with the um, Climate Vulnerable Forum. So it was a joint initiative between the developed, you know, the EU, let's say, or part of the EU at least, and the most vulnerable countries um, and builds on other initiatives like uh, the insurance resilience, which uh, took place in the past. Uh, there is bilateral cooperation or the EU was one of the countries to pledge the most, for example, for the Santiago network, but also in terms of uh, resources w- for early warning systems or, um, um, or other, you know, re- initiatives related to, to loss and damage. Um, and I think, uh, yes, th- there's a political willingness to, to engage even more through the, this fund and the funding
1: arrangements. It's clear then, loss and damage will continue to dominate in these negotiating rooms. Yes, yes. Well, I, I, as
0: I said before, um, COP twenty eight will be an important moment because, yeah, the transitional committee, which is responsible for operationalizing uh, the funding arrangements and the fund, will need to come to the COP and, you know, give recommendations on how to operationalize uh, yeah. the, these funding arrangements. Uh, so that will be a very important moment. We have the Glasgow dialogue, which was established last year, which will continue until 2024. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there are other processes related to loss and damage, which are uh, important. For example, I mentioned the Santiago network, uh, which was created um, at COP25 uh, to catalyze technical assistance uh, for developing countries, and uh, at COP27, it was, um, you know, the, its institutional architecture was finalized, so now, you know, uh, it can start actively delivering this technical, you know, assistance. There's mm-hmm. the work of the worst International Mechanism, which is continuing, so yeah, the city is here to stay.
1: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of work to be done still but well, um, w- we have made some important achievements in the last COP. Um, yes. But yeah, a lot, of, a lot of work that still has to be done. What do you personally hope to see um, in terms of loss and damage?
0: The set of non-economic losses is something that uh, still needs to be, um, well, better understood within the scientific community, but also f- from the policy point of view, we really need to understand how to tackle these you know, impacts which surpass our capacity to adapt. And this mm-hmm. is really a new challenge. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if I think about uh, what I would like to see both as a researcher and somebody, you know, <laughs> working also in negotiation would be to see more action on these impacts which somehow surpass our limits and our capacity uh, to adapt.
1: Yeah, well, I think that brings an end to the first episode of our podcast. Thank you again, Dr. Elisa, for joining us as our first speaker. And to our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in. Subscribe, leave us a comment, follow us on our social media platforms, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.